0: This is Abby Martin. This is a disclaimer to say that psychedelic drugs do not universally work the same for everybody. They can cause psychosis at high enough doses, and they can be life-changing in ways that are not always intended or desired. Psychedelics should be used responsibly and with extreme caution.
1: One thing I've learned, a very basic rule, which I think is very nice, and that is keep your sense of humor and don't take yourself seriously. And that's a hard, hard one to learn. Have fun, enjoy it. And uh, simplify. Very good, very simple. This has come in very much in the last decade or two. Simplify things. You tend to build complex relationships and explanations and details and try to find how the elves indeed got on that side of that branch of the tree. Enough to know maybe they're elves. And even at that, maybe they're not elves, but they're as if there were else. Simplify, make things a little bit easier to, to take. You can't take it all with you when you go. So at least you can, you can. Uh, who is it? Nabokov, I think it was, wrote this marvelous little line um, which said, in essence, the last two seconds of your life are spent. The first second is reliving your entire life and going through everything kind of all over again to where you had come from and where you are now. That's the penultimate second, and the last second is preparing yourself for truly the ultimate change in state of consciousness. So maybe that's what you're learning. You're learning how to change your state and live, if I may use it as a slightly misdirected word, with that change of state of consciousness, which is the epitome the quintessence of dying.
2: Hello. Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Robbie Martin. Abby's about to join me in a second, but since we're just picking up here as a continuation of the previous episode, part five, on our ongoing mini-series about psychedelics, definitely make sure you listen to part five, which was the previous episode, before you start listening to this. But Abby and I pick up right where we left off, which was our conversation... About trying to square the circle of how Alexander Shulgin could still remain close to people inside the DEA, even getting accolades from people inside the DEA about his book Peacall after he released it.
0: There's a documentary called dirty pictures. Um, that, that's really excellent that you recommended that I checked out. I, I recommend people check it out to really learn more about Sasha and Anne. But a DEA agent is like interviewed throughout the film. And even he talks about how before it was scheduled, before MDMA was scheduled, he took it in a clinical setting and it completely transformed his life and unearthed all this trauma that he had and really like grounded him and so it's just funny to, to and like he's so passionate about his work as a DA agent. <laughs> and he's like crying at a certain point talking about how the agency changed and um and I'm not sure really what his role was with them but I think he was a friend of theirs um and well maybe we should just get this
2: part over yeah. with in terms of like airing out all the potential conspiracy red flag stuff in terms of like Is he, you know, how close was he to the DA? Mm -hmm. If he was this psychedelic revolutionary figure who invented MDMA, how could he, uh, you know, be associating with people like this? Well, I mean, if you're concerned about his associations or continuing associations with DA people, uh, this is going to sound even worse. Um, Shulgin was actually a member of what he describes as the Owl Club, uh, the Alpine, which Club. is like
0: a Bohemian Grove spinoff, or no, what? no, it's
2: not a spinoff. He's actually talking about being a member of not just the Bohemian Club, but the being an, a regular attendee of the Bohemian Grove itself, and oh, not wow. just an attendee of Bohemian Grove because of his Dow Chemical connections. This is even before he became like notable in the DA. He was actually a member of the what's called the Owl Club Orchestra, which is the official Bohemian Grove band. He played viola in the orchestra for the Bohemian Grove for about 30 or 40 years straight. It was like one of his most long-term extracurricular things. So you were talking earlier about how he was a very, tr- you know, well-trained musician. He was able to pick up instruments very fluidly. Well, he channeled that skill the most in his regular membership in the owl club orchestra and in fact at schulgen's funeral uh which i attended it was open to the public um in between speakers at his funeral they had little musical numbers performed by none other than a quartet of members from the owl club orchestra when i say that that is the official bohemian grove orchestra and it, it, it actually gets worse than that if you want some more conspiracy bait. Uh, Shulgin actually talked about drinking with Henry Kissinger and then he like socialized with him at Bohemian Grove that's probably like the worst of it that's out there so I, d- I think you know maybe that now since we're just talking about him getting married by DEA best time to just get that out of the way um, but if you have any comment on that
0: yeah he kind of d- he downplays this in interviews um, or actually he talks about it in PCAL but it's kind of downplayed even in that where he just says kind of nonchalantly that, you know, this group of interesting guys asked him if he had heard of the Owl Club, and then he talk and then they talk about how they needed a viola player and would he be interested in sitting in for a couple of evenings. And then he was like, the club proved to be a group of gentlemen from a broad array of political and professional backgrounds. Leaning somewhat toward the political right and the well-to-do. It's like, yeah, no shit. It's like the who's who of like the U.S. Empire, you know, where the Manhattan Project was plotted. Just so many crazy things going
2: on there. Which the Manhattan Project was plotted like a good 50 years after the Groves' existence.
0: A side note is a videographer who bought a piece of art for me one time, I think I told you this, Robbie, And he came to pick up the art and he was like, yeah, he's like, crazy story. I had to film in Kissinger and Associates for some show I was working on. And he was like, and there was the cremation of care photograph on like the wall. Yeah. In one of the rooms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it's just so bizarre that that actual photograph of the owl from Bohemian Grove is up in Kissinger Associates. Extremely in your face, strange stuff.
2: Very strange stuff, and for people who haven't listened to the Freemasonic History of the United States, I spent about two and a half to three hours just on the Grove in the last installment of it. And one thing, just one fun fact people may not know, is that um, the Grove, as beautiful and as you know, old of a location as it is built in the California Redwoods, the Stone Owl itself is basically like a Matterhorn Disneyland-style prop that's a mixture between like paper mache and fake rock so it's not even a real uh stone owl like that's it's a, it, it, but it looks really good like that just shows you like how weird the aesthetics are there and in addition to that um the just one thing I wanted to throw out there for people who may think this sounds completely off the walls that Shulgin was a part of this is that the Bohemian Grove originally was meant to be like this more eclectic queer artist actor like uh like group of San Francisco Bohemians it only became like a, a camp out for elitists and people in elite circles like in the early 1900s and then like leading up to World War II. So I don't know. I mean, if that's some of the old, you know, if there was still some of that spirit at Bohemian Grove, someone like Shulgin fit right in. But he's kind of almost in the in between both. He's like an eclectic, eccentric, kind of radical person. And he's able to, you know, go in and out of these elite circles because of his connections. Uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, it is interesting that he he was this really top level chemist at Dow Chemical, which is already crazy that you're that high up, that you were granted all of this authorized access to do whatever you wanted, that you almost were able to convince Dow Chemical to take on like an official psychedelic research division. (laughs) And then at the end of the day, they're like, you know what, we're it's a little bit too risky to actually like totally oversee this and like put our name to it. So that's when they asked him to just start putting his like um return address on all like the stuff that he was doing and then that's when he became like he that's when he was able to use all Dow Chemicals materials to start this kind of alchemist laboratory <laughs> on his farm. But but interestingly enough is that he was actually granted a special license from the DEA
2: to do this research. Absolutely. And that goes back to what we were saying on episode 2 where Emanuel Sirios found a DEA licensed laboratory in Sacramento, California, to start taking on, you know, testing e-pills. Uh, and based on this ID, he had to put those results online. Shulgin had a similar license all to his own. He didn't have a commercial lab. As far as I know, he might have done contract work for some people. But what you're saying, what he did for Dow is really fascinating, is that I don't even know if people realize how important that research he did was but he actually was discovering essentially like the blueprint for how to extract mdma or an amphetamine derivative like chemicals from natural sources which i don't think i mean even though somebody had synthesized mdma like in the 1920s or whatever it wasn't it was done like just purely with lab synthesis you know it wasn't he had concocted all these ways for, like, basically our organic extraction from things like, like I was saying, like nutmeg, like saffron, and that was, I think, very cutting edge at the time, and that would basically become the blueprints for how a lot of MDMA illicit manufacturers would do it, because, you know, they weren't just doing pure lab synthesis with pure chemicals, they needed a precursor, which is, again, a very important aspect to illicit, especially like illicit drug manufacturing.
0: He was really passionate about the dichotomous nature of how people talked about psychedelics in terms of natural versus unnatural. And he was very offended when you would say, oh, you know, all of these chemicals are not natural, man. Like, I like to stick with, like, what grows out of the ground, bro. You know, psilocybin mushrooms and stuff like that. Like, you can grow it yourself and watch it and then you take it. And he's just like, dude, every drug comes from a plant. (laughs) He's like... It is ridiculous to say that LSD is not natural. All of these compounds are natural. He was like, literally, you could say that about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I liked that he was just like, no, that's crazy. All like I I I worship plants. The natural world is like the setting for all of my research, and he was super passionate about that. And so he he really disliked that.
2: And there's actually an interesting rumor. Uh, that I heard a few years before he died. That he claims, and I'll reference this again before we finish. But he claimed to people privately, and and people not sure if it was a troll or not, that he eventually discovered MDMA naturally occurring in a cactus. And then he would kind of make this a side joke, being like, "Well, you know, I, actually, I don't know if the beaker that I had <laughs> was like completely clean, so it could have just been some MDMA left over <laughs> from like a previous experiment." But he actually, I will name this cactus name before the end of the broadcast. I have no idea if it's an urban legend or not. I have no idea if Shulgin was trolling people privately or not. But he actually used to say the name of the cactus that he claimed had MDMA in it. Tell us, what is it? Um, It's called Trichoceras grandiflorus, apparently. I have no idea if that's been verified. I have no idea if it's a rumor or anything.
0: Put that in your fucking pipe and smoke it, dude, because... There was something interesting about Sasha at the end of his life that he just decided to pivot over to like cactus cultivation. He had yes, a greenhouse full of peyote cactus. he was very obsessed with cactus and potentially figuring out these other compounds or derivatives from cactus that we didn't already know about, so that that's really interesting, and um, specifically knows, man,
2: yeah, and specifically what's interesting is like a lot of people were really hyped up and waiting for his. What well, would basically be his final book? Quecall. Uh, it's called. Starts with a Q. Uh, quinolines. I have known and loved, uh, which is probably his most obscure book of the three. People were sort of hoping that it was going to be all about psycho- psychoactive discoveries in these, but it was actually like quinolines. As far as a psych, uh, like a compound, they're mostly like muscle-based um, drugs. Like that's what's in tonic water. So tonic water used to be a medicine and that's what's in it, like quinolone. And this is what he, for some reason, he became like really into this idea of how cactus have a lot of these different kinds of the, that kind of compound in it and they all slightly affect you differently. Um, so I think a lot of people were like underwhelmed or confused by his last book that it was not like psychedelics cactus. That was not like what most of the you know descriptions were about. But I guess along the way he did make some discoveries
0: that's really interesting. Yeah, these two books were really groundbreaking work, not only because they were just highly personal, diving into the, live, the lives and work of um, Sasha and his wife, but also because of the recipes. And, you know, like we said, more than 200 chemical po- compounds just in PCAL alone, which stood for a chemical love story. Uh, fena, maybe you can explain the
2: um, I think it's I think it's actually and it's uh, there's some dispute. I think it's pronounced phenethylamine or phenethylamine, uh-huh. um, but when you look it up online, people pronounce it differently. There is no like a hundred percent agreed on pronunciation as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I could be wrong on that. I'm sure there's going to be someone who'd be like, you guys fucked up this what <laughs> yeah. kind of pronunciation. I'm this sure part? there will be.
0: Yeah, and then it was followed up in 1997 by tecal, which is easier to say. tryptamines I know and love. Um, it was called t The Continuation. So this was 97. The first book was published in 91.
2: In 91, you got to think yeah. when that was. Yeah. This is oh, like yeah, even before like, most yeah. people even heard of raves. It was before most people even heard of ecstasy.
1: This morning, the Drug Enforcement Administration is announcing its intention to place the drug known as MDMA or by the street name ecstasy under emergency controls and schedule one
2: and this was after the da had already made a law basically called the analog act right after they banned ecstasy trying to make it illegal uh, any kind of what they would call designer drugs and what shulgin did was basically exactly what they were worried about happening which is somebody released hundreds of recipes for anybody who has experience in chemistry to make like new spin off molecules of existing illegal psychedelic drugs. And he talks about how
0: 2CT7 was his personal favorite. He said if all the, the phenylalamines were to be ranked as their acceptability and intrinsic richness, 2CT7 would be right up there near the top. It was a very glowing endorsement of this drug that ended up being fear mongered and used as the basis of that. Uh, enforcement act that cracked down on all of these analogs and you know of course that didn't help his case and no matter what relationship he may have had with the DEA the DEA did constantly harangue and harass him later on and in fact two years after the publication of PCal, so this was in 1994 the DEA raided his lab
2: yeah it was just um, I don't know have you seen the muck rock uh, article about the raid Pretty, no, it's actually one it. of the better like just little website uh, you know repositories for information about the raid it just has like all the actual like raid docs basically it was triggered by a high Times interview uh, mm. that Schulgen did and high Times as corny and as you know silly as high Times is or was it's even sillier now it actually did used to be a vehicle for some like very cutting edge. You know quasi legal uh, drug stuff back in like the 80s and early 90s and that's like how like i was even saying i heard of the church of the inner light that dpt smoking church in new york from high times you know otherwise i don't even know if i would have heard of it so but you have to think of the timing of this when did p come out late 91 i think this raid happened in 94 It seems to have been precipitated by the release of the book and then like him getting pressed from the book, you know, kind of culminating with the raid.
0: Right. Yeah. It says that um, there was a previous investigation, but there was no evidence that he was actually doing anything illegal, especially because he was licensed, that special license to do this kind of research. And potentially in this interview, I haven't read the High Times interview, but maybe he talks about how he was actually doing trials with friends. I don't know how legal that was testing all these psychoactive compounds.
2: Well, that's that's part of like the gray area method mm-hmm. of it. It's, like it's one thing to release the recipes, which technically yeah, yeah. is not illegal, right. but in along with all the recipes, this is the thing that people need to realize. It was like a proto version of Irwood. It was like he had anonymized trip reports of mm-hmm. friends. And other people around him uh, that were also, that were basically the like guinea pigs for reports in the book. So there'd be like a name, like a pseudonym, and it'd be like so and so took so many milligrams and had this experience. And it'll be like a paragraph written by this anonymous person. Some of them could have been Shulgin, some of them could have been other people, some could have been his wife. I personally know someone who's in one of those books as a pseudonym. Uh, I think they're only mentioned like in two different trip reports. So who knows who's who, but that's the thing. It's like, there's nothing directly legal about that either, because it's not like he's saying, I brought so-and-so over to my house. I gave them a dose of MDMA that was this amount. He doesn't actually like walk you through him giving people drugs. It's just sort of understood that these were people that he probably knew that were guinea pigs. Right, so it was it's, like ambiguous yeah. trip
0: reports that he had just archived, and there was no even original names or anything. Exactly, and that was all. Anything,
2: and and if as someone who consulted for the DEA and who technically at this point still was a, like a, a technically consulting, was never like officially fired or anything. Uh, he probably understood that this was a way to create some kind of legal protection for himself. Um.
0: Exactly. And 92, two years before the DEA finally raided him, apparently there was another inquiry. This is hilarious. That involved 600 doses of LSD that apparently had been at the request of a DEA scientist that Shulgin had and was analyzing. (laughs) Analyzing for what? (laughs) Like, here's 600 doses of LSD. Like, just check it out. Let us know what you find. Like, yeah. what is
2: going on? The D agent was like, man, this is the best <laughs> asset I have ever yeah, tripped yeah, on. Pretty, Sasha, the lines can you here. please just test it for me to see how fucking strong it is? Because, like, I want to. I mean, no, it's so funny. I mean, but that's the thing. It's like he had a DA license to do whatever he wanted with Schedule 1 substances. I mean, I guess he tested. I didn't even know about that. Testing LSD for other <laughs> D agents. Doing early versions of pill testing, having people send pills to him because he had a legally authorized DEA license, you could do the same thing with him. And that's part of what the DEA also tried to use against him later on, um, because they thought that, you know, in the combination with his advocacy and his stance on MDMA, that it was like almost like a form of advocacy that he wasn't just doing it under like a legal capacity either. So I think they actually, when they raided him, from what I've heard and what I've read, they, I guess he had a peyote cactus, which again, Mm -hmm. he's legally allowed to have because he's studying Schedule 1 substances. They knocked it over. They like, apparently the DEA like broke and destroyed like a hundred year old, like extremely valuable peyote cactus. Peyote takes a very long time to grow. And they also confiscated all of like the pill testing that had come in from him which included like actual MDMA pills again which he was legally allowed to possess so that's when i know that they took i think that they tr- took a bunch of his paperwork as well they seized some of his money uh
0: $25,000 they eventually he was fined with which is pr- overall in the grand scheme of things they obviously could have cracked down a lot harder than just doing that and as well as revoking his DA license but it's still i'm sure it's a hard hit hmm 25k but I think it was more like symbolic at that point maybe that they were just like okay this has gone too far who knows who knows what the actual impetus was apparently the DEA agents who did the raid also like asked him to autograph pcal
2: <laughs> yeah maybe we should pause on his story now and mm-hmm. just go back to the the fallout of 2ct7 because we started talking about him because he got you know this is probably a lot of people's introduction to him in the news but because this is sort of the culmination of all of his works like you said this is his favorite psychedelic that he created right it was Mm -hmm. this is is the one and now he's being asked to be interviewed again after he gets interviewed in high times in the early 90s which seemingly led to this raid he's not stopping doing the same things that he's doing even after this raid um, he loses his DEA license so he's not allowed anymore to overtly do schedule one drug testing but he can still do make you know, so called designer drugs, so called make new chemicals which is one of his things that he's best at so technically this didn't really burden him in that sense but I mean here he is in the news now I believe early 2001 uh, having to answer for his favorite creation uh killing not just one person but you know uh, at this point other people had overdosed on it as well and i think that he had a lot of emotional turmoil over it honestly from what it seems like
0: i'm sure he did i mean especially because he urged the purity of using these drugs he really urged the safety um and he was really offended like i said before about people who callously and carelessly would make all these for profit and try to make money and make th- make these chemicals impure and just not care about his work. Like, really the true value and nature of what he was trying to do. And so I'm sure that that was very hard, a heavy cross to bear the fact that several people died um, mixing, you know, different concoctions, but primarily from this chemical.
2: Yeah, and it was, really, I mean, and he you know he acts and says in in pretty much all the interviews that he's horrified this is the last thing he wanted to see happen this drug getting onto the streets you know it would have it should never be on the streets basically he said the same thing kind of about 2CB even though to my knowledge i don't think 2CB has ever been identified in any overdoses but at the same time you kind of have to wonder well then what was he actually what was his ultimate goal with doing this why if he had this such an aversion to drugs making it onto the streets what did he think would happen and that's part of I think one of the remaining questions that I have about him is like was he just really naive and idealistic about how people would use his research was he hoping to be involved and was he did he become such a fixture in the psychedelic community hoping to steer people in the right direction even though it seemed like in a lot of ways he despised Mm-hmm. very sh- primary aspects of psychedelic culture i mean he even you know by the tw- i would wouldn't say not even the end of his life for probably most of the last third or half of his life he looked very much like a hippie and and you know you would see him and you would see think he's like an old hippie guy he had long flowing gray hair santa claus like a beard sometimes he would wear psychedelic looking you know shirt bright colored shirts so it wasn't like he was completely averse, you know, it wasn't like he was this academic guy that was just in there because it was convenient to be in there. It was, he, he was a part of it too. So, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Abby?
0: I don't know. I think that he was just so on such another level. (laughs) Like, honestly, I hate to like use this to absolve the fact that, you know, he, he was publishing all of these, recipes essentially knowing you know mm-hmm. you, you're not stupid you're in fact a genius you know that these are going to get out and you know that people are going to try to make them and i think that he was just so eccentric and it was kind of like a runaway train where he just was like he was so into this research and felt like it was so groundbreaking that he wanted to share it and despite the consequences, right and i think that you can hope that people would be responsible with it, but at the end of the day, I think that we all know that that's not the nature of, of human beings, especially in the society that we live in. So I think it, naivete is definitely the best case scenario, but I, I definitely think that he knew the risks and he just overlooked them just to pursue his own eccentricity and to cement his, you know, stamp his genius out there. Because that's basically what he said. I mean, he said that that's why he decided to publish it, because after they scheduled these drugs um, in such a severe way, he was just like, he was so devastated at the removal um, of the idea from mass consciousness that these could be used medicinally and help advance your consciousness in like a legal way. That he was just like, fuck, I just need to like put these out there and then that's that. Like, my hands are clean from whatever happens with the, you know, with this book that i published and it's like yeah. well all right but you you also know the tendencies of people in this movement and you've talked extensively about how much of a turn off a lot of you know the behavior and characteristics that people share um but you know at the end of the day i i don't know it's yeah i have mixed feelings about it um but i'm i'm so grateful for his work you know
2: yeah, I mean, there's definitely going back. You know, some, when some of the people called into, uh, Dost and were very sort of understandably fixated on the whole colonial and intelligence and government aspect of this, and even someone brought up the idea of like privileged individuals. Um, you know, there's I think it's impossible to to remove from Schulgen's state of being a sense of privilege, and basically his connection, even if. You don't go down any conspiratorial rabbit holes with his DEA connections you could at the very least say that for someone who invented like not just one or two but several different drugs that like literally got scheduled by the DEA <laughs> and like other countries around the world too for not being serving like actual jail time for that and being like a free man to continue his work throughout the remainder of his life he's a very lucky individual in that regard and I think that if he was a person of color, if he was not a person of means, uh, you know, um, if he With did not... With the connections that quit, he had. Didn't yeah. have connections to the DA. People in the DA Bohemian obviously probably growth. liked him. Yeah, <laughs> he would have been in jail and he would have been seen as a pariah on society and he would have been, you know, it wouldn't... He, his life would have been much different. So I do think in that regard, it's impossible to separate that. Um, and again, it that's what part of what makes a lot of this... You can't just say that you know that psychedelics are a thing just you know that there's something that's available to everybody to experiment with and to you know experiment with freely there are certain people if you're not white um if you're not someone of privilege you could spend a long time in jail for even wanting to experiment with one of these substances um yeah and it
0: was almost too loosely it was almost like kind of like terence mckenna e in that utopianism where it was just very loosely like like we're all just doing these freely without consequence because he had no consequences Mm -hmm. essentially for the fact that he was cultivating these things doing these trips and trip reports and just constantly making all these new compounds and the fact that he was close to the DEA had these higher up connections there was kind of this consequence free attitude that perhaps was just a little bit uh you know yeah like you said a very privileged attitude to have because anyone, you know, the average person, especially people who are marginalized already, are not going to be able to share that privilege and are at grave risk for experimenting with these things. And he never really talked about that. He never really talked about that in any of these interviews. It was just kind of the the notion that we all understood that they should be explored. um, And, you know, they can help you or not help you.
1: I don't think I'm interested in the Godhead now. I don't quite know what it is. I'm interested now in what works upstairs and why it works. Sometimes you have to disrupt something to see how it should work. Sometimes you'll come across something that is disrupted and these may be tools to reconstruct what has been disrupted for pathological or, or traumatic reasons. I don't know. But you, have, you can go into the direction of, of trying to repair, help, be a therapist, interact with others. This is noble. This is a whole profession unto itself, not mine. But I know in time there will be a going with tools, with therapeutic tools to the helping of others. And my art's making those tools. And I want to use my energy that way. Now, some people will say that the tools you made, 2CB, and, and you re brought to the surface uh, MDMA and many, many other uh, substances. Backfired. It has been used for the wrong reasons. So you, they see you as a bad guy because you, you didn't help the world. You put it into more misery. In what? I have no, no, I have no voice in how these things are used. My point is putting them in the medical literature, the scientific literature, and let people use it. Good heavens! People publish how to make gunpowder, fi- gun gunpowder, and isolate uranium isotopes. That makes it no less of a, of a search how these things are, what they will do, how and and how, how to obtain them. Or whatever use you wish to put them to. Education can be put to a terrible misuse. I've seen it done that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone will ask me, well, aren't there irreversible changes from drug use? There are irreversible changes from an advanced degree in the university. You're never the same person, but you've been equipped with something. How you use it, then you sort of strike a bargain with your own alter ego and perhaps your own unconscious. But to have that information allows you to use it. Not to have it robs you of that possibility. And I've got tools exactly at that point. They're there. They do this. They modify that. They change the viewing towards something. Search it out. Let other people use the tools. And they are far better equipped than I am to use them. But I want to make the tools because I can, that I can do.
2: Well, I mean, just example of just how maybe naive he was or how he maybe didn't realize the forces he was provoking or just in general. He did seem to be like idealistic in the sense that there's things that he said in this high times interview, which I could see a DA person in some suit somewhere in some office being like, we got to fucking like, I can't believe we let this guy do this. Like he (laughs) needs to be punished now because what he, what he says in the interview is the high times interview is saying like, when did you start designing drugs from when did you draw the courage to take unknown substances? So basically the interview just starts with him admitting that he's taking these drugs himself um, in his own lab, he's taking these like you know psychedelics he's inventing, and then the High Times interviewer says, was there any response from the DEA to the book, particularly since you included recipes? And he says, one of the things I did was to send a copy of the book to people within the DEA with covering phrases like, here's a book that will provide you with a lot of information which may be useful to you. They loved it, Anne said. One of the higher administrators of the <laughs> DEA in Washington said, "My wife and I read your book, and it's great." <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
0: really so, telling on them, there. Yeah, dude. no, exactly. Like, so, so, like, going on. And I think
2: actually, this is not something that was uncommon. As Anne would be the one to spill the beans more than he would. She, I think, Anne and him did have a really good sense of humor, <laughs> but Anne sometimes would be the one to like say what she was really on her mind sometimes to a to a fault. And I, it, it, it might have been what got him in trouble, actually, like that line right there from the interview. I could see th- someone in the DA being very angry at reading that.
0: That's fucking hilarious, <laughs> dude.
2: Oh, my God. It's so good. <laughs> but you're right, though. The DEA did try to fuck with him in 86, thinking that he might have been doing something illegal with MDMA. Nothing came of that in 92. They looked into his receiving those doses of LSD from the DEA agent. Nothing was come out of that. But, you know, they said basically used his pay- possession of a peyote plant against him uh, when they raided him. You know, they used whatever they could against him when they did that, even though it did not result in any jail time or anything. Worst thing that happened to him, revoked his DEA license to $25,000 fine. This is actually really funny. The DEA. File on Schulgen Is it has a, a guide to Raves in it It explains and tries to break down different Genres of rave music in the DEA What file A rave is defined by The music the types of rave music Are as follows colon, A. Techno electronic and fast Classic <laughs> rave music B. Hardcore 140 bpm beats per minute in parentheses. C. Trance gentle but fast d ambient slowed down trance that's a whatever d agent thought came up with that as a fucking idiot nobody would like that e house 120 bpm evolved disco now that's an interesting description it almost sounds like someone like was a house music fan who wrote that one f garage funkier jazz and lyrics that's not a completely off-base description of Garage. I, I'll give him that. G, jungle. Drum and bass, hip-hop. Nice. <laughs> but I the want to be the DEA part.
0: agent who goes and, like, classifies all the rapes. It sounds like a fun job. Just go. Your job is just to go to raves, not to, like, uh, rat people out or, like, expose drug use, but just to, like, classify their musical genre.
2: Dude, it gets even funnier. I'm sorry I have to read this. It gets, I didn't realize there's all this in here. Candy ravers are the young ravers, ages 13, 16. They, they like fuzzy animal backpacks, Teletubbies, Winnie the Pooh, etc. They dress like children and wear a lot of colors. Gee, Japanese animation is becoming part of the rate, Dude, this is amazing. I can't believe this is a. Are there
0: this pictures? Is, what? Are there pictures?
2: No. No. Oh this is God, so, so. Dude, good. this is so fucking good. Old Ravers in the Bay Area are not looked on upon suspiciously because there are so many old hippies. <laughs> and then, this last thing I'll say, Ravers drink Red Bull, not Gatorade because it has caffeine in it.
0: <laughs> Dude. <laughs> Why was I don't this get, even in Shulgin's file? Though?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's so, dude, it's so weird. It's hilarious. Probably really. because in court they needed someone to, like a judge. Imagine like trying to file something against somebody like in the era of like this you know designer drug market who had like no context for this stuff i could it would make sense i can
0: imagine a, like <laughs> someone just reading this off to a judge and the judge yeah, yeah, like oh, yeah. okay good, good yeah, like, yeah, writing
2: down notes like okay. or the judge just in his office by himself at night like looking at the affidavit to decide you know what to do and he's that's for him to like read it you know it just <laughs> the whole thing is just fucking ridiculous wow uh, i don't know exactly how many of these drugs were actually scheduled because as we were talking about when, when we started this, is this death of two, from 2CT7 two triggered what was called the Analog Act, and this sort of made it so that all of a sudden all of Shulgin's work and all the drugs that he made were now potentially all illegal automatically, and you know so Shulgin, you know, was saddened by 2CT7 being scheduled. You know the impact of the Analog Act maybe hadn't been fully felt yet among the, the psychedelic community because it wasn't until much later, 2004, which all these all the other places got raided too.
0: Um, so yeah, it was it was a good decade plus
2: after this raid that he was still working
0: on stuff. Apparently, he was working on N lated tryptamines, five meo d a l t five meo m a l t. I have no idea what the fuck those are. But um, yeah, it's, I mean, he lived to be 88, you know, that's, that's a ripe old age and he had a very fulfilling life, very complex life and, you know, left an enormous legacy and an incredible foundation to build upon with all of these drugs. I mean, the few times that I've taken Shulgin's creations, it was the best some of the best psychedelic experiences in my life because of the lucidity that you're able to maintain while having those visuals it's so different than LSD or psilocybin where you just feel like mentally incapacitated at times I felt like very Mm -hmm. just aware and like capable of doing a lot and really mentally acute so I, I, I really appreciate his contribution in a profound way
2: and i mean he invented some pretty crazy you know ones too that that are some of i i think probably some of those hardcore psychedelics out there 2C-T7 i think he might have even invented DOB early in his life that might have you know i'm not absolutely 100% sure which that's what i was saying which of his creations actually got scheduled it seems like 2C-B was the first one of his creations that got actually scheduled but i know that 2C-T7 2C-T2 got scheduled later. Um, other drugs that he did talk about manufacturing in his book like 5-MeO-DMT for example, eventually did get scheduled later in like 2011. But the era that we're sort of that I was sort of talking about earlier, the all these things were still legal on the internet. You could straight up buy these things still except for 2C-T7. That was like immediately people stopped selling that. The DEA announced they were going to schedule that. But nobody was like, oh, the analog act is going to wipe out everything else yet. That wasn't in people's heads yet. Um, it wasn't until later that that became sort of the understanding of what was going to happen. I just wanted to mention before we get off Shulgin's books is that D.I.P.T., one of Shulgin's more interesting and bizarre and unique creations uh, was in T.C.A.L. And D.I.P.T. was, I don't know the exact name, uh, the breaking apart the acronym. But it's a tryptamine uh, drug. And what DIPT does, and it was actually sold online during the same time period. And now it's also scheduled, which is strange to me because it's not a recreational drug. And I'll explain why. It actually only seems to alter your auditory perception. It's a hallucinogen that only affects and makes you have like auditory hallucinations and distortions. And almost zero other effects. No body effects. No... Mental effects, no visual effects. And he describes doing this himself in the book, and the, the descriptions sound almost unbelievable. It's like, how did he figure out or find or invent a drug that does this? I, in a weird way, I think this might be one of his more exciting and interesting inventions. Not even if we're just talking about the, the singular field of psychedelics, but just like this almost sheds new, in my opinion, like new light on the way humans perceive sound, because I'm a sound person. It's such a strange drug that if you do DIPT, it doesn't just lower or change the pitch of music or people's voices, which it does. Like it, it actually will make human voices sound so low pitched that it's almost like unsettling, or it makes music sound low pitch and actually changes the distance between the notes in the music. Whoa, that's
1: so crazy! So when you
2: hear the music, any wow. music on enough DIPT, it'll sound completely out of tune. Like <laughs> from itself. I tried to listen to so like two that's tortoise so albums bizarre. on DIPT once and it sounded like a fucking experimental music, like John Zorn free jazz album.
0: What was it that you listened tortoise.
2: To? Like oh my just God. really, you know, like chill yeah, yeah, yeah. post rock, you know, instrumental music. It had no semblance of like melody or <laughs> harmony. It was completely out of tune. That's so off putting and weird. No, it's it is very weird. But also, yeah, super
0: fascinating that you can that I, I wish he'd like did more on that front where it was just all audio like different audio stimuli stimulation stuff
2: when i think he immediately realized how insane it was because he you know he was a scientist he understood the basics of how humans perceive sound we perceive sound in an exponential or logarithmic fashion what he discovered in this was that it, it alters pitch linearly therefore the relationship that we normally perceive of like all we base sound on the relationships of pitch to each other so when you alter that even slightly it just throws the entire thing so out of whack it actually almost is like it creeps you out um and he just found this very fascinating that just changing this little thing could make like all music sound horrible can make all people's voices sound (laughs) so unsettling that you almost like feel like they're pod people from invasion of the body snatchers Um, because everything else seems normal, except you're hearing their voice, in 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 a way that's not just low register, but like their pitch relationship is different. So it's it's very fucking unsettling. And I did it, and I can vouch for exactly what he said in his book. I mean, it is one of the weirdest experiences, not I would say non like psychedelic trip experiences I've had on a psychedelic. How long does it last? Um, probably like five six hours. Jesus. Yeah. So the actual culmination of all this uh, was basically a chilling effect, shutdown, whiplash effect, if you will, because of this excitement and this new Wild West territory of having availability to all these like pure chemicals, drugs, um, just sort of came crashing down all at once. There was, for example, a really, really nicely marketed Um, Very, uh, you know, I thought smartly marketed psychedelic research chemical store, you know, that kind of made JLF seem like not classy and like too brazen and crazy. Because I was saying earlier that JLF, Mark Nealmoehler, who ran it, was almost kind of like doing like a troll thing. He was like, these are poisonous non-consumables, literally the name of the store. The the difference between him and some of these other places, like, for example, Issue, a place called Issue.org operating out of Canada all of a sudden popped up out of nowhere they had a a mailing list a private mailing list like for their new products they were doing things a little more smartly even though they had a website it was beautiful looking it was very minimalist almost kind of like an Apple kind of aesthetic design their logo was really nice and elegant. And they were literally bringing to people for the first time ever, left, like cutting edge Shulgin recipes from his books and stuff that Shulgin didn't even talk about, like new recipes, like that someone else had some seemingly come up with of like MDMA analogs and mushroom analog, like psilocybin analogs. And if you became a loyal enough customer to issue they would actually send you free samples in the mail of like new psychedelic drugs. And I remember I buying DPT you? from this place a few times, smokable DPT free base oil that was amazing. Um, and then like once I was on their mailing list and yes, bought enough things from them, I got like a free sample of something called five H O DPT or something like that in the mail, D I P T or something like that. And it was basically a psilocybin analog not nothing written about it online, no trip reports even, and it was like it just seemed like this mysterious, crazy, exclusive club to be a part of. where You would literally get mailed like pure chemical-free samples of completely unheard of analogs of um, of tryptamines. It was insane. It's and
0: absolutely the most surreal time ever. That this was it, it really online. was,
2: and and here's what's funny is I remember when I went when I described going to mind states that psychedelic. Convention in Berkeley, um, and an earlier episode. Uh, I remember that guy who ran Issue was sort of hiding out in stealth. He didn't want anybody to know who he was, and he was he was present, but he didn't want anybody to identify him. He knew, like, even just exposing himself to other people in the psychedelic scene would be like too risky for him. Like, that's how paranoid he was. But he was he wanted to be he wanted to be like an observer. And I remember someone like pointing him out to me and being like, hey, that guy, like, guess who that guy is over there? That's, that's issue. And I was like, no shit. Like that random like dude just sitting by himself in the corner. And they're like, yeah, he came all the way down from Canada. So he was like, so these people were like very involved, but they were, you know, they, they almost kind of operated like they were like clandestine, you know, spooks in the world of like psychedelic, <laughs> the psychedelic underground.
0: Yeah, I mean, as well they should have because that is, you're really – in some gray area there. (laughs) Like, If you could even call it that. I mean, Jesus Christ, I would have been super sussed out if I were that dude.
2: Yeah. Like how was he
0: even mailing this shit? Like where, like, I don't know. It's just nuts. Well,
2: especially because he operated from Canada. I think Mm -hmm. that he must've had, I mean, he had to have had some kind of U S proxy who was, helping him do this cuz i can't imagine he would have taken the risk to send things over the border but maybe that's you know in a pre-9/11 era maybe that yeah. was actually like something people could get away with i mean yeah, i maybe remember that I
0: helped him you know who knows yeah
2: i remember ordering um materials to make when i finally found a good supplier of mimosa hostilis i remember ordering it from a place in new zealand and you know all the oh. herbs and stuff came it was just like packaged like incense and they didn't i don't even think the package was searched or anything so this you know this like I said this all culminated with a a real crackdown of all this stuff and it it culminated with something that the DEA announced in a press release at the same time they rated about 10 individuals all operating in this wild west legal psychedelic drug market and it was called Operation Web Trip now how did they spell trip well they spelled it T-R-Y-P so, the DEA, you know, I guess that's probably actually probably one of their more clever operation names they've <laughs> ever come up with. It's pretty deep cut there. Yeah. Um, but the actual, uh, I'll just read you what the DEA's own press release says about it. Uh, operation Web Trip was a United States DEA operation that ended on July 21st, 2004, with the arrest of 10 people. Now, they say ended on, it started and you could go back to their own like documents. It basically started around the same time they arrested Mark Neumuller from JLF. So it had been going at this point for about three years or so. Um, and you know, to round up only 10 people, uh, who were involved in this and, and basically act like this was some big, almost like they, they presented this in their own press releases as if it was like a, like they had taken down like the biggest drug dealers in the country. Um, And they say its purpose was to investigate websites suspected of distribution of unscheduled, unregulated tryptamines and phenethylamines of questionable legality. The trade in gray market drugs, which are not explicitly illegal, but potentially prosecutable as drug analogs, became known as the research chemical trade. Um, And five different websites were involved in Operation Web Trip. Uh, Ten different people were taken down as part of it, but like they were all, you know, these were like multiple people running these businesses. So, uh, really only five websites went down in the end. And, uh, one of them they claim was grossing only $700,000 total before it got shut down. Um, another one only grossed around $500,000 within a year. I mean, that's really not that much money for if they, they're trying to make these people seem like they're these big time drug dealers, yeah,
0: like kingpins. Pretty,
2: pretty small amounts of money, can, relatively speaking. Um, so, you know, the, I'll just m- mention really quickly the people that did get actually raided. Uh, the people were included. A website ran by a guy named Pondman. I remember this was probably the last time I purchased DPT online was from this supplier. He got raided. Um, I don't know exactly who is behind it, uh, what the name of him is. Uh, American Chemical Supply, a guy named Michael Burton got raided. Um, Another website called Omega Fine Chemicals got raided. Uh, Another website called Race Research, or not race, but like RAC Research, aka Duncan Lab Products got raided. And around the same time, the DEA started to also try to scare off Uh, places that distributed mushroom spores. This is something else that was in sort of a gray area that had actually been around since the 80s. Believe it or not, in the U.S., there were catalogs you could buy, send in a check, and they would send you a syringe of, like, psilocybin mushroom spores because it was technically legal. You're only... Like, if you grow psilocybin mushrooms, um, you could, like, technically do it as a hobby. You just, like... There's some weird legal gray area there, but Mm -hmm. basically they raided started raiding places like that. And they also kind of around the same time rated a guy named Robert McPherson, who ran a, a website called psilocybe fanaticus. At this time, people like Bob Wallace were like announcing, you know, basically like being like calling out a warning and being like, they're coming for all of us now. Like if you do anything where you're selling, like don't stop selling this stuff online um, they're going to use the Analog Act In fact they're even going further than that They're trying to enforce some kind of meth uh, Like manufacturing law Which actually like makes it illegal To just do like chemistry that's legal If it can also be used to make meth Which will also make like a lot of people Just making analogs of legal drugs Like illegal Like what they're doing illegal On top of the Analog Act So Bob Wallace and people were like Trying to warn people to stop But of course they were you know There's these other websites that wanted to still, you know, capture the marketplace from other people that were too scared to do it. Um, And tragically, very sadly, I mean, we we end kind of this part of the story with the death of uh, not just John Lilly, um, who dies, you know, as arguably an old man. He lived a pretty long life, but John Lilly passed away. Not too long after, you know, the beginning of all this sort of started crashing down, September thirtieth, two thousand and one, and he died uh, from drowning, I believe. And it's, you know, by On all ketamine? yeah, by all personal accounts, um, he was basically unable to be off ketamine for more than like one hour at a time. He was oh my God. injecting ketamine continuously throughout the day. Sometimes in the middle of his sleep, he would inject it then go back to sleep. It was like Michael Jackson level drug abuse and also his mental illness had spiraled out to the point now, but where if you read his last interview, it is nothing but ramblings and paranoid delusions about the ECCO, the Coincidence Control Office, how they're all coming to destroy humanity finally, solid state intelligence, that's why they killed all the whales you know the whales were all, the only thing left to like help us because they were like the elder intelligence gods now we're basically like the solid state intelligence's slaves to carry out their agenda and it and it was a pretty sad final interview um, of anyone you know probably one of the saddest like final interviews of anyone as famous and as notable as John Lilly um, something that, I, that hit me personally really hard I didn't know John Lilly I didn't ever meet him most people in the psychedelic community saw his death as just another thing to throw on the pile of ketamine is a bad psychedelic and it's harmful uh, which was still a mentality that was pretty pervasive at this time people again were like yep we knew it you know he was abusing ketamine uh it was not a surprise you know but um a death that was a big surprise i think for me and a lot of other people on the scene that that still you know, personally it hits me hard when I think about it. About a year after the death of John Lilly, um, it was announced in, you know, in the way that simultaneously one of the most low key ways possible and also just like kind of shocking and hard to believe ways possible, was I wake up one morning, log into Usenet, reading rec you know, hoping to You know, read my daily intake of Bob Wallace posts, um, you know, just see what people are talking about. And one of the first things I see is Bob Wallace has passed away um, on the morning of September 20th, 2002. Um, Someone, and I don't know exactly how he was found or if he was found by himself. His official cause of death, um, according to his family and according to the San Rafael Police Department, was pulmonary pneumonia, and that kind of pneumonia can be, you can get it multiple ways, but one of the ways is from partial drowning. I don't know the full details on what happened. His death was ruled natural causes. I don't think it was ruled accidental. There was no mention of drugs anywhere in the official cause of death. So it would be really surprising to me if drugs were involved in any way, shape, or form in his death But again, you just never know. I mean, you, you know, uh, someone his age, I would say more susceptible than I am at the ripe young age of uh, 40 years old of having like a severe reaction to a, you know, a hardcore psychedelic experience. You know, we talk a lot about how a lot of these drugs are not inherently toxic, they're not inherently Dangerous. You can't OD on things like LSD. You know, one of the main dangers is like is like having a psychotic break or having a psychedelic trigger or something like that. But I think another danger that maybe we don't talk about enough is that you can have a heart attack simply from being like frightened. Imagine having a very very intense psychedelic experience that is equally as frightening as something like opening your door to a SWAT team. I mean, you are taking on a risk that you, if you have a really weak heart, so psychologically speaking, there might be something you experience on a trip which, which could be stressful on someone with a weak heart. So my sense is that it's more psychological, but I guess the, I'm going off on a complete fucking tangent. But this was kind of the end of an era in a lot of ways, the culmination of all this ending sort of with Operation Web Trip By the DEA, the death of the guy who was propping up all these institutions and who was also like a huge part of the online community, Bob Wallace, I think it created a really big wound in this sort of revival of the psychedelic scene that it never fully healed from in a way. Something about this era I think was really special, was really unique, felt really cutting edge in a way that did not have corporate influence even though you could argue that bob wallace was a rich privileged you know elitist uh he wasn't part of corporate culture for decades you know he just used his money for philanthropy i think that this era was very special was very unique was sort of shielded away from corporate influence it wasn't mainstream yet the only way to really know about it was to be really seriously interested in it. You couldn't just be a casual tourist. And if you were, it maybe wasn't something that you would like because it was just too overwhelming. It wasn't friendly to sort of casual tourists. It was something you had to be really serious about. And I think that there's something about what's happening now where like psychedelics have come more normalized and more to the masses. There's something more watered down happening with it as well, even though there's nothing inherently bad with making them more available to people, I think they should be. I think that something has become more watered down about what people think about them, how people view them, how people even talk about them, how artists talk about them, how artists interact with them. You know, we talked an awful lot about how the hippie era was very indulgent and narcissistic and maybe even psychedelics created more of that for some people in the hippie era. You know, a lot, and a lot of people taking psychedelics in the 70s were sort of more channeling, not necessarily hippies, but musicians and artists, were channeling that energy into like sort of an energetic, creative storm. And they were, you know, even maybe you could, I guess you could call art indulgent if you want, but art, you know, could hold a very important place for society as a whole. Psychedelics were being used in, in some really radical ways, I think, back then like especially in the late 60s and, and 70s in some of these art collectives. And I don't really think that that's happening as much anymore. I do think psychedelics have become more associated with purely self-indulgent partying. Even what raves eventually evolved into these giant EDM concerts with the drops and everybody cheering with glow sticks and all these bros with wife beaters on and backwards hats and it all just seems like it's all just one big bro party now. It even makes the bro, you know, Adidas tracksuit wearing era of, like, 90s drum and bass that people used to complain about seem actually a lot cooler in comparison. I mean, that makes that stuff, like, Ali G, the Ali G show, which is kind of making fun of that era of, like, rave and UK, you know, chav culture. It actually kind of makes that era seem, like, pretty cool in comparison to, like, the EDM, horseshit, electronic music watered down culture that exists now or you know how everybody and their grandma talks about going to do ayahuasca to cleanse themselves so i feel like the you know the clampdown operation web trip the death of bob wallace and then when i met Lori, um, my now wife in the early 2000s i think these are just all reasons why i felt like this era was mostly behind me i didn't really need to heavily experiment with these things like I was before. I didn't live in a roommate situation where I was living with a bunch of guys who were also sort of, were feeding off each other's energy and also wanting to experiment on this stuff. You know, it didn't even make sense for me anymore even to just try to find something online and buy it. You know, because even though the Analog Act and Web Trip happened, you would still hear from people. You know, you would, I remember hearing from a guy a few times after I started dating Lori, um, like sometime around 2004 like late 2004, after uh, the raids, he was like, hey, did you know Pond Man is back? He's selling like DPT again on online, and I was like, oh, no shit. I was like, but isn't he, you know, didn't he get raided? And he's like, yeah, but he's, I, I guess he's not in trouble, and I'm, you know, so then at that point, I'm thinking, well, it seems a little sketchy to me, even if I get my DPT in the mail, the DEA is basically going to be like, watching everything this guy does now, so I don't want to be on a list, you know, I don't want to I don't want to get arrested now that I'm like living with Lori. I mean, all these things like you know just made these things less appealing to me. I think I continued to hang out with um, the guy who originally introduced me to Shulgin and the Friday night dinners. Um, although we became, he moved, I moved. We it was less convenient for us to actually hang out with each other. And I think probably the last Friday night dinner I went to actually was at Bob's house. Sadly. And so that was one of my last memories of going to those those events. I think I maybe went later to a later Mind States Psychedelic Convention again when it came back around to Berkeley. Just to check it out. They weren't selling any like actual substances this time. They must have had a rule now where it was like, you don't sell plants or things. Like last time I bought a salvia plant at the one I first attended. I remember seeing Zoe 7 there and he gave me a big hug and we kind of chatted for a while and talked about how we should catch up and we kind of tried to stay in touch via email and didn't really end up happening. But yeah, in general, I think I just, I personally moved away from psychedelics um, by this point. But I would say my final accomplishment, just to end, you know, this, this story on a slightly positive note, if you will, is that. Through all my failures of making DMT that I said I wasted all that time and money, I eventually, pretty much right before all this went down, I eventually figured out how to successfully make my own DMT, several batches of it, about four separate times. And each time I yielded somewhere around one to two grams. So I wasn't making this stuff, you know, to sell it, I was really making it to just have it and... I think just being able to make it successfully that many times in a row makes me confident enough to believe that, you know, even if like DMT becomes impossible to find, like if I can never find it again from a, a drug dealer, let's say in my life, I know for a fact that if it really came down to it, I could make my own. Um, if I had the precursor supplies to it, it's something that I am capable of doing. And I think that most people out there probably would be too. It's just not something I would recommend doing unless you, you want to waste a lot of time and money, and you have a lot of patience, and you also research the inherent risks and dangers of doing like kitchen chemistry with things like lye, um, which are very dangerous caustic chemicals, or muriatic acid. That's those. These are things not to fuck around with. So this should go without saying, but Abby and I felt. That this needed to go in the podcast i am no longer in my early 20s and doing things as reckless as trying to do kitchen chemistry with no chemistry experience anymore now in my early 40s i'm not trying to come off as ageist but i just wanted to stress to you here that what i did attempting to make dmt in my kitchen i would classify as extremely irresponsible but on the flip side sometimes while doing irresponsible and reckless things you acquire Skills along the way. So I learned from my irresponsibility and my mistakes, but you know, I did acquire a skill. I can't completely throw the baby out with the bathwater, but just take into consideration that if I had it to do over again, I would have actually taken at the very least a basic chemistry course, which I did not outside of high school. So thanks again, everybody, for checking out this two part, now total of six part mini series about psychedelics by Media Roots Radio. We're going to continue this series next month with probably a two part episode again, this time about ayahuasca tourism and what seems to be a growing normalization of and normification of ayahuasca. I just saw Mike Cernovich of All People talking to Charlie Kirk of Turning Points USA, the conservative Christian media outlet telling him that his ayahuasca trip recently is what helped him deny temptation from demons that he hallucinated while on ayahuasca and charlie kirk was trying not to seem too weirded out by the fact that mike cernovich is talking about doing ayahuasca Um, but it just i think it just goes to show how normalized this has become Um, one of those redneck comedians who's usually associated with jeff fox where the ron white was just on joe rogan i believe or maybe it wasn't it was tom segura's podcast kind of almost looking like a hippie now wearing like a white fully white almost like buddhist shroud saying that ayahuasca cleansed him and i don't know if he's still drinking because that was like part of his shtick you know doing comedy now i'm just going inside baseball comedy um as the ending for this podcast about psychedelics that's I guess where I'll end this podcast. It's kind of in a weird place to end it. But thanks again for listening to Media Roots Radio. As always, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber of ours at patreon.com slash Media Roots Radio. For as little as five dollars a month, you get access to one bonus exclusive episode per month. And you also get access to all of our previous bonus episodes, which amount to now to about a hundred hours of exclusive content. Thanks again, everybody. Take care.